Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jackson, and today, plenty of news to discuss in Australia's media and marketing industry. So, we're going for an extended news chat format. You'll hear from just about everything across our media and advertising ecosystem today, including Seven West Media's financial results, Crikey and Private Media squaring up with Lachlan Murdoch, split opinions on returning to the office, the agency merry go round, and finally, a quick look at how some of the hold codes are squaring up locally. Joining me today is Western Australian correspondent Andrew Banks. Banksy, how are you doing? Glad to be here. And, and when I say here, I mean Perth. It is, it's, it's rocking. Coming in from Umbrella Towers, there is journalist Kalila Welch. How are you doing, Kalila? I'm doing well, thank you. Holding the fort in the office today. And acting deputy editor Emma Shepherd. Em, I'm not sure exactly where you are right now, but how are you doing? Um, I'm feeling. I'm feeling a lot better. I was a bit bit sick this morning, but feeling feeling on the mend. Thanks, Cal. And finally, regular Mumbrella Cast panelist and Trinity P3 Global CEO. It's Darren Woolley. Hey, Darren, you're looking very snug there. Hi, Callum. Yes, um, it's a little cold where I am, which is uh, the inner west. But uh, working from home today because we're just all recovering. <laughs> <laughs> well, a very, um, a very apt topic, which I'm sure we'll get into later. And I must say, Banksy, it's it's about time that we um, we had someone over in the west. There, are they? Uh, are they enjoying your presence? I think, yeah, they're a little shocked. Um, when I turned up, I think that's you know, I didn't really expect things to be this crazy i think the weather's not helping where you know i left that crazy weather in sydney behind and and i've just essentially walked down the road to get a coffee and walked essentially into a cyclone and now it's sunny again so the the weather's doing crazy things the people here are quite sensible um they they love the industry um they've got lots to talk about and um yeah i've been having a few meetings so it's been 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 a good tour so far Brilliant, and it's, um, it's good to see the, the wind didn't blow your hair off there. Bit of breaking news coming through, classically, just after we've finished recording. So this is just Banksy and I coming in here yesterday. Hey, Banksy, once again. Hey, Cal, still in Perth, but what news, hey? Yeah, what news? So Lisa Ronson, uh, Chief Marketing Officer of Coles, has uh, announced that she will be departing the retailer Um in about a month's time or so, peculiar timing. Um, big, directly big after, you know, we, we reported that they had uh, finalised their search for a bespoke marketing agency, right, Banksy? That's true, yeah. So uh, it's kind of a very shock to the system. It's going to really kind of put things um, out of place in so many respects. I think everyone's really jumped on that story as it as it broke and everyone's kind of wondering now what, what happens to Coles and, and everything like that. So what what what's it all about, Cal? What can you tell us? Um well because it's you know it's kind of a, a live story, it's only just happened. There were kind of murmurs earlier in the day that something was going down at Coles, but it was kind of unclear on what it was. Um, speaking to you know, a colleague in, in the industry, I suggested that maybe she would be leaving, but um, the suggestion even that seemed quite ridiculous based on the timing, you know, mm. that we, we just mentioned there. Um, yeah. I guess it leaves two of the two of the biggest 
CMO roles in Australian advertising now um, vacant um, mm. with Coles and also that IAG role with Brent Smart recently um, being revealed to be moving over to Telstra. Yes. Um, I think that the main point that comes out here is that, you know, you would maybe immediately suggest that she might be moving to IAG. That was one, she was one of the names that was sort of thrown out as being the replacement there. Um, but it's clear that she's suggested that she's taking a change of lanes here. Um, one of those being focusing on an adjunct professor role at Deakin University um, and Coles Group CEO Stephen Kane in an email to staff, which was um, passed through uh, just before he mentions one line mm-hmm. here. He said, um, with future, with her future aspirations in mind, Lisa has recently completed the IACD course, which is a kind of directoral um, certification course. So that suggests that maybe there could be some sort of switch to a you know company director um, away from marketing, maybe some sort of board role. So yeah, I don't, there's not all too much other to add right now Banksy interesting timing with the financial results coming out next week so I suggest maybe uh when that does come out there might be some sort of indication whether or not it was performance based or not yeah I think it'd be interesting to get um you know Lisa's take on it as well I mean whether it was kind of in the wings whether it was always that case or you know how much how much preparation was done for this transition. So I think, you know, it's good that we'll keep on top of the story and, and just follow it as, as things develop, but um, really, really good to get um, the, the word out so quickly. I think, I think the team did a good job. So well done, Cal. Yeah. And also, I guess, as you say there, whether or not there was planning towards it, a question, whether or not we'll get the answer to this, I doubt it would be whether that was known internally before that, um, the agency decision was made, um, which was three three weeks ago today, um, you'd be probably quite aggrieved if you were in the the losing party at that particular pitch. Um, you know, it's the, a classic trope that um, when a new chief marketing officer comes in, they like to do a little bit of a reshuffle or take their business to pitch. Um, but you know that I think that was a two-year contract put in place there, so we might not be seeing that just right away for whoever does come in. But um, yeah, that's pretty much um, all there is to add right now, Banksy. Anything else from you before we get on with the rest of the the recording from earlier on? I think we'll just keep our ear to the ground, watch the comments coming in, and see you know see if there's any uh, a wider story there for us to cover. We'll keep on it. All right, enjoy the rest of the podcast. On to our first news topic of the day. Um, Seven West Media delivered its financials this week in a webinar presentation from its CEO and Managing Director, James Warburton, and its uh, Chief Financial Officer, Jeff Howard. It was a big improvement on recent years and has kind of followed a trend since um, Warburton did take over. Um, the company said it was its best results since financial year 2011. Some of those top line figures included a group EBITDA of $342 million and $1.54 uh, billion in revenue, up 21% since the previous reporting period. M, 
those numbers are, I guess, pretty good. And the way it was framed for Seven West Media was pretty good also. Um, how is it performing more generally and how much better a position are they in than when Warburton was appointed three years ago, which I believe three years ago yesterday? Yeah, so as you said, Cal, um, it's the best result since 2011. And um, on the earnings call to investors and analysts yesterday, uh, Warburton confirmed that 7 Plus, 7 plus sorry, has driven 40% of the Q2 22 earnings, uh, with the platform now having over 13 million registered verified users, which is just incredible. Uh, and he did say the, the biggest point that he wanted to raise uh, with the success of the results this time around was the acquisition of assets, including Prime Media Group, uh, and just the growth of 7 Plus, as I just mentioned, um, that's really kind of cemented the company as, you know, a national leader, um, as well, that's what Seven's calling themselves. I don't know how Nine would feel about that. Uh, but the integration of Prime Media Group is, is obviously underway, including the development uh, of revenue synergies as well. Uh, and I do want to mention that Warburton said, when you start talking to clients with addressable data and 6 billion data points, and you're the nation's leader in total television, you're the first point of call from an agency and the client's perspective. So he's he's very excited to push that national uh, total uh, TV, total people um, you know, placement for, for seven. Um, Banksy, you did a bit of, um, I guess, digging as well and looking into this. Was there any um, kind of, I guess, perceptions from the market and how seven is responding? I know the share price did drop fractionally after uh, after that, that earnings call yesterday. Yeah, uh, I had a chat. I th- I, look, I think seven's success is definitely more to do with how they've re-engineered their business under Warburton, I think, rather than anything specifically to do with ratings or revenues. I was speaking with Steve Allen earlier from Director of Strategy and Research at Pearman Media, and, and he said that a large part of Seven's success was due to their ability to get their debt and costs under control, and he said that's just good practical business steward- stewardship. Um, Allen said that all... That all really pretty much boils down to Warburton's three-year formula that he laid down when he first took the job. And he believes that he's pretty much delivered on everything he said he would pretty much on time. So he he said that despite that, though, he said there was a little bit of conflicting kind of messaging around things. He said that while Warburton may be quietly confident taking up the revenue Talking up the revenue outlook for television, Alan said in their view, he thinks that it's going to be flat for this half for television. It's kind of interesting and, and you touched on it a little bit earlier there with the talk of the, the, the total television, I guess, way looking forward and um, Warburton sort of said, moving moving forward into that next stage, he wants to focus on non-advertising uh, revenue as maybe one growth area they can look to with subscriptions maybe being a driver of that. Is there any sort of indication where that might come from? Obviously, you look to nine, they've got the Alliance Stand service and um, 10 with the Paramount Plus through its owners, Paramount in the US. Where might that come from and um, wh- where could we potentially see growth? Will that come through partnerships or is there what are the opportunities there? So I spoke to a spokesperson from Seven 
today, actually. Uh, and I don't know how many times we've asked Seven and particularly Warburton this question, you know, are they going to align themselves with an SFOD service? Uh, but, you know, Seven did say that they have been having meaningful chats with several big global players, both in the SFOD and AVOD capability. Uh, so I think by the end of this year we'll we'll know more uh, in that area. But does anyone remember Presto? Yes. Yeah, they had they had the Presto with Seven. They shut that down. Um, Seven says that they're you know they've done it before. They can do it again. So hopefully a little bit more successful than Presto. But uh, yeah, look, they seem uh, that you know either way they're killing it now. And if they do the, align themselves with an SVOD service, they they think that they're just going to be unstoppable. So time will I tell. Pre- I, I think M Presto was a great name when it disappeared. It had a very magical quality to it. Darren, were you going to jump in there? Look, um, the the interesting thing, M, is uh, all of the media owners are playing now around this addressable audience. You know, uh, Seven announcing that Seven Plus and their thirteen million. Uh, we've got News Corp have uh, bundled all their addressable audience together. Nine is playing out. There's even uh, SBS on demand has got significant numbers as well. And of course, this was all predicated on uh, the cookie crumbling which, of course, uh, Google have now announced that they've pushed that out to 2024. So, you know, it could be that a lot of this work eventually will pay off, but uh, the the timeline, the horizon, just seems to get pushed further and further out uh, based on Google's uh, willingness to actually crumble the cookie. (laughs) I think... um... One point that was brought up quite a lot across a lot of the media coverage over the last 24 hours has, again, been those AFL rights, which um, appear to be, by all accounts, kind of coming to a head now. That There was a meeting on Monday, I think it was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, with the, the result of that expected to come to an end uh, before the season's end in the AFL next month. Um, it was interesting listening to Tim Burrows' um, the, the founder of Mumbra the other day, he was saying, I know you think we talk about this a lot, but the only reason we do is because it is quite a big deal within um, within this ecosystem. Um, and again, Warburton was saying that sport does drive uh, revenue quite heavily for, and, and for minutes with the company. Um, speaking to the AFR, he said that uh, we know exactly where we sit with the AFL and we have a very strong relationship with them playing up the, of the uh, 62 years of broadcasting seven has held it for all but six years of that so with that i think uh, an interesting one to that which will very much decide the i guess future path of seven you know if they do agree to that rights deal which sounds like five years i think the um the way the sports broadcasting ecosystem looks in 2029 will probably look vastly different from what it looks like right now. Um, one final point that came out in the uh, financials was Warburton's remuneration, which I believe stayed roughly the same around the 4.5 uh, million mark, which is a pretty um, pretty healthy take home for him. So, uh, yes. Any more points you want to on that? Yeah, I was just saying, I think if you're delivering on what you set out to achieve and it's all um, mapped out and you do that on time, then I think it's probably money well spent from a from a company perspective. 
that's about what you equal to what you get here at Mumbrella, right, Banksy? It is just it's the it, the dot is in the in the, it's a few <laughs> doors further the other. Oh right, right. yeah, so, forty five thousand was it? Yeah, yeah, um, something like that. <laughs> up next, uh, Crikey and Private Media take it to Lachlan Murdoch. <laughs> An initial article in the Sydney Morning Herald in the Age on Sunday reported that CEO and non-executive chairman of News Corp, also uh, executive chairman of Nova Entertainment Group, Lachlan Murdoch, has sent multiple legal threats to Crikey following an article published in June, which was soon taken down after. On Monday, Crikey then republished the article, which is titled Trump is a confirmed unhinged traitor and Murdoch is his un." unindicted co-conspirator with private media CEO Will Hayward writing on his LinkedIn values of live, not just written down. One of Crikey's is bravery. He Murdoch uh, believes it should be illegal to say Fox news has something to do with the January 6th riots. We disagree as do most people. We reckon Murdoch has reportedly said the claims are defamatory and wants an apology uh, and has kind of been indicated in quite a few places that, um, it has not previously been Lachlan's father, Rupert, his uh, style to kind of go down the legal route over his long storied career, um, though this is not the first time that Crikey and Lachlan Murdoch have had its run-ins. Um, Darren, what is your sort of take on Crikey kind of deciding to stand up to uh, Lachlan Murdoch and say we've had enough? Well, there's a couple of things here, Callum. The first is that... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, an expert in uh, defamation law, but I was pretty sure you could defame an individual and not a company uh, was the first thing. And secondly, for uh, someone that has the, the let's say, um, the privilege of owning a global media empire that often criticises others, uh, it just seems to demonstrate a bit of a glass jaw whenever there's criticism pointed back towards the organisation. I think, you know, his father's probably uh, demonstrated that by not rushing to lawyers every time people say nasty things because he sees it as part of the rough and tumble of being in the media game. And I, I think, you know, trying to leverage this uh, to to silence critics is probably goes against free speech, uh, particularly for someone who associates themselves with a strong presence in the US. Kalila, you um, I think were mentioning beforehand that there there was a bit of a kind of link up in the timing over this. Was that right? Yeah. So it's an interesting one, and probably um, I'd say a reason that it is such a sensitive spot for Fox Corp. Um, at the same time, um, Fox News over in the US is being um, sued for defamation by Dominion Voting Systems and Smartmatic for their um, representation of the vote um, voting fraud or election fraud during the 2020 presidential election. Um, obviously, while a different company, it is um, a sore point for the Murdochs, given that they're kind of, you know, they can't argue on the one hand against this defamation case saying, no, um, we didn't do that. And then on the other hand, I guess in their view, let it slide if another um, publication is criticising them for doing the exact same thing. Um, so I think that's kind of why they're, they're kind of taking it 
so far, I guess, but it really does point to, you know, when we're talking about misinformation um, and, you know, holding holding the media to account for what they're saying, it is it does really feel, I guess, kind of wrong that they do have an ability to go and, and sue for defamation for something. Uh, again, as you said, Darren, especially when it is a corporation, you know, we talk about holding corporations to account for what they do and um, it just feels a little bit hypocritical almost. Yeah, and I think you would be able to point to maybe um, News Corp as, uh, as a as a as a company, I guess in as as a whole, which hasn't been scared of sort of throwing stones in the past. Um, I think the fact that Crikey did re-upload or republish that um, that article this week suggests that they're pretty confident in their position going forward. Um, and I, I think we could probably expect more action this week and this to continue to unfold. Banksy, just, this was... Just, um, just, be, just before you go on, uh, just going back to what Darren said about the, the rough and tumble of, of the media industry, I just find that it's there's a real disconnect there between uh, publishers slugging it out and then suddenly like wanting apologies and going through this kind of polite legal route and, and I just feel that the best course of action, I mean, I know it's a very serious charge to lay against somebody in this instance, but I would imagine that the best course of action from someone like News Corp in general would be to just rain down a series of counter arguments, counter opinions um, that would really kind of show the general public that, you know, they won't be pushed around, they won't be essentially... Uh, put into a corner and I think it's kind of a little bit of a um, a disappointment, I guess, to see them going down that route for that consideration alone. I think also it kind of it feels a little bit like David versus Goliath when we're talking about Crikey and News Corp, you know, like it just feels like they're, it feels like an unnecessary route and it feels like nobody's really going to want to side with News Corp. So it's a really bizarre decision for them to push that, I think. Yeah, good point. Well, I think the, the the initial the initial response by Crikey to remove the article the day after does suggest that there was an incredible imbalance there. Um, but you know, back to that that same point, the fact that it's it's now coming back up, and you know, it's in it's in the news. And um, editor in chief of Crikey, Peter Frey, told the Sydney Morning Herald that they're they're sick of, um, I guess the the fear mongering or fear factor that um, Murdoch and News Corp have put to them in the past. Uh, coming up next, how much are companies struggling to get their staff back into the office? This next topic is one that will probably be up for contention for several months or several more years to come. And while it might have gone quiet for a little while, an op-ed from Thinkerbell's Adam Ferrier on our site in one day sparked quite a severe debate if you haven't read the article, I would suggest you go over to umbrella.com.au and read it yourself and, I guess, form your own opinion um, and be sure to jump in our comments section, as uh, quite a few have already, and tell us what you think. Um, there were reports recently which said in Melbourne, 38% of offices in the Melbourne CBD were occupied in July, according to the latest office occupancy survey by the Property Council of Australia. Um, probably some sort of incentive there in in, in looking at who uh, 
put forward that survey, but this was down from 49% occupancy rate in June the month prior. Banksy, you are, we'll start with you. You're over in Western Australia, which has sort of made a point about being separate from the rest of the uh, eastern seaboard for the last few years. What's the, the vibe over there? Are people in offices? Is this as much of a, I guess, conversation as it is over here at the moment? It is. I think that there's lots of different things going on. I, I was at um, Initiative Perth earlier. I was speaking to um, David Berger there, and he he seems pretty confident that people are coming back. His office was was full. They were they were all working really hard. I think they suffered um, a, a different not suffered, but they took a different path. Obviously, uh, under McGowan in WA and decided to shut themselves away from all the drama and just it created really a vacuum for them where they they happily existed while everyone else was sort of uh, really struggling on the eastern side. They just went about their business and um, were able to kind of continue on as normal and then when, when everything opened up again, that's when everything started to hit and it was quite the shock but I think from from the Perth perspective I think they all believe that that had to happen sooner or later that there had to be that correction and uh, speaking to David um, about the industry and his his company particularly we, we did touch on this topic and and he was pretty clear that it's to do with the culture of of the workplace and the people that you work with and how you foster that and build that and grow that and all work together that creates the incentive and the um, the feeling of wanting to go back into the office and, and see your colleagues again and work with them and share ideas and, and just the limitations that come with working remotely, uh, uh, the, the speed at which can, things can move a lot faster when you're face-to-face to somebody. You can look at different reactions and you can gauge how people are feeling a lot quicker than than on any zoom call uh because you know you're just a little bit further removed um so i think generally speaking in perth i would say that the energy is there for the industry to to go back to the office and i think from a from a business point of view it makes better sense um but he did put a caveat on it and said that there obviously would be exceptions that they would you know look at each individual case as long as people are coming in and and making an effort to um to not game the system in any way and just just to be honest and come in and do the work i think there is there is room for flexibility in all this as well darren what's what's your take as this as a as the i guess the ceo amongst us here i, I know it's you know obviously going to be different for every business um kind of as Banksy says there, but do you feel like there is a disconnect between business owners and maybe the flexibility that young people in this industry have come to, I guess, become accustomed to? Well, Callum, before I answer that, I, I think the timing of Adam sharing the photos of the new Thinkabell office and the new, <laughs> what is obviously a very expensive fit out that he would like his staff to enjoy is, uh, is an interesting one. Um, but Really, I think it comes down to the organisation and the employees. You know, I absolutely understand working from home, especially for younger employees that are wanting to get that sort of natural uh, 
experience and training by working alongside more experienced people, the social aspects, you know, if you're living alone, uh, then work becomes a social aspect. So for individual employees, I think it's important. Um, Trinity P3 is a very different business to agencies. It's a consulting business. It's also global. You know, we call ourselves a micro multinational. And, you know, we're constantly and for years have been working on video conferencing. So the, the whole working from home wasn't a big shift. But for agencies, which is very social, I think, you know, it comes down to what do the employees need and want, uh, especially in a world where we're having trouble attracting good talent and keeping good talent. One of the key ways of doing that is creating flexibility. And I think any employer that comes down hard with everyone must be at the office. We saw Elon Musk said that anyone that wanted to work flexible hours has no place working at uh, Tesla and the outcry that that had. I, I think... Uh, yeah, even Adam would uh, agree that building flexibility into the way people work today is really important if you're wanting to attract that high quality talent and keep them working. Because, you know, at some point we all become grown ups and we all can take responsibility for doing the work that's assigned to us. Yeah, and I think um, Apple were saying this morning that they're kind of looking for their staff to come fully back into the office as well. Uh, funnily enough, I was in the new diversified communications of Mumbrella Melbourne office yesterday. Very nice location in the city. So that was, I'll, I'll hopefully be looking to go back into the office a bit more. Um, does your, de does your Kalila, desk before have a, we, does, you, does your desk have a view, Cal? Uh, yes, of course. Well, they gave me the corner office as, as you'd expect. So nice, nice. Uh, you'd hope so. Um, <laughs> Before we go into, uh, I guess, some of the, the, the sort of um, wider industry, how they are kind of dealing with it, um, Khalil, what's your kind of uh, experience with this coming into the full-time workforce at a time where this has been, um, I guess, a period of transition? Um, what's sort of been your impression of that? Yeah, look, I completely agree with Darren. I would say I think the biggest part of this for myself and I think for a lot of my peers as well is the choice piece. Um, I think that, you know, it's all well and good to want to have your team in the office as much as possible. But I think as soon as you take that opportunity to have flexibility away from somebody, um, they want to, you know, if you say you have to come into the office five days a week, the last thing you want to do is come into the office five days a week because you don't feel like it's something you're doing willingly. Um, and I've done both, you know, in previous jobs. I've also had it, you know, it's during the pandemic, non-lockdown times where it's been, you know, enforced to be in the office five days a week. Um, and I do think you do feel like there is a little bit of lack of respect for your own personal life outside of work um, or lack of care maybe. And so I think that for me personally and and for a lot of people I know, that kind of mix of maybe three days or two days or whatever it is in the office and, and having that flexibility to if something comes up, if you don't feel great, um, you know, if whatever is not working out for you, you can kind of discuss that with your manager or just let them know and that's fine. And I think that's kind of the best way to go about it to keep everyone happy and I think the more flexibility people have like the more they're actually probably going to want to be in the office because it's probably a good sign of the culture yeah um I mean I think one of those those uh kind of points will be that you know no matter what you decide companies are still going to need to I guess eat the expense or the costs of having an office and be able to facilitate for all their staff when you do need everyone to come in Darren 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because the advertising industry has no baby boomers working in it anymore because they're all too old. Um, so Gen X is interesting because as managers, they're still showing that sort of command and control type mentality, which says you must turn up at the office because I need my people standing here. I really think it's whatever's best for the employee. You know, we're now working in an era, as I said before, that you know, getting good talent and keeping them is hard. So if one of the things is creating flexibility, and accountability as part of that. You know, you get the benefit of working from home when, when you need to, but you also have to get the work done. And I think ultimately that's the bottom line for any CEO or business owner. Do you think that the dynamic has sort of changed then between, I guess, who holds the power in that instance? Maybe a good employee can sort of hold it over their employer and think, well, you know, I, I, it needs to kind of be my way or else every other agency is looking for someone of my calibre. Yeah, I'm not sure it's got that sharp, but yeah, underlying there's definitely, you know, well, if you can't accommodate what I need for my life, then I know I'll be able to find someone. I mean, what's uh, unemployment's down to three point something percent, you know, the lowest it's been in more than 40 years. Uh, so, you know, if someone is talented, then one of the ways you could throw more money at them, but actually what is more important than money is having more control over your life and the way you live it. You know, money's, uh, money gets taxed, time doesn't. Thanks, Can I just add, uh, I put a call out in the weekly wrap this weekend and I, and I think that maybe um, Adam might have seen that and, and decided to, to put forward that opinion we really do need strong voices in the industry just talking about these things. And I, and I think you will be surprised how polarising a topic it is. I, I think that the loudest people are the ones that are fighting to keep the flexibility, to keep that work-life balance. But there are a lot of people out there that still hold that, that old view that, that a team works better when it's when it's sort of all in the same vicinity and, and all those things. So they're not the ones actually getting out there and, and being as vocal, but but I, I would imagine that the percentage is a lot higher than, than you would probably expect. And uh, if you're not subscribed to that, make sure to catch Banksy's new uh, wrap of the week on Saturday mornings where he'll talk up some of our best stories. Um, just before we move on to the next topic, Kalila or Emma, was there any sort of anecdotal evidence from agencies or companies that you might have spoken to as to how they're dealing with this? Em? Yes, I had a chat with the MD of Initiative uh, here in Sydney, Joe McAllister, and she says that it's all about kind of a culture of connection and flexibility. Uh, and so they basically said to all of their staff that they don't need to come into the office at all. Um, and she was surprised to see that, it's in particular the young ones, they're coming in at least three times a week. Uh, and also I've got a lot of, you know, where I used to, my former place of work, Yahoo, they are also saying the same thing and they have, um, you know, people coming in three to four days a week. So it seems to be working the whole flexibility thing. Uh, and giving giving their staff a choice. Well, it's it's good that we've got initiative on the uh, east and west coast covered off. So <laughs> <laughs> it's been a good week. Um, okay, let's move on. We've got two more topics to cover off. 
Uh, next, we're going to talk about a, a number of agency appointments on the, uh, the merry-go-round. So the start of this week, we saw a number of familiar faces crop back up in the Australian advertising and marketing industry with Mike Wilson and Simon Porter joining Hatched as it launches its Sydney office. Jason Tonelli switching across his publicist agencies to join Zenith Media and Cam Holter rejoining DDB after five years as Sydney Group Creative Partner. Um, then outside of that, more recently, we look at names like Danny Bass uh, joining Dentsu and John Sintras at Mutiny quite a few familiar faces popping up at the moment. Darren, do you think there's any indication that we might start seeing some sort of international, I guess, talent in those higher level roles hit our shores soon? Or is it just maybe a fact of our um, kind of Australian industry that the same names are cropping up quite often? Look, uh, we saw a lot of international expats return back to Australia already during the uh, pandemic. I think as uh, things open up, you may find a few more, but really what you're seeing here is tried and tested talent, you know, with uh, high uh, reputations and high regard, just recycling through the organisation and popping up in new places and, and potentially doing new things or doing more of what they did before. And I think that's that's just a natural occurrence that happens to be in some sort of sink at the moment that we've got so many in a short period of time. Yeah, speaking to um, an agency executive recently, and they kind of noted that potentially that is maybe just a a result of how the market's looking right now. We've got one kind of um, international, highly regarded executive coming into Bohemia um, very shortly, Paul Hodgson from Wavemaker, uh, in the UK, so it'll be interesting to see how, how how kind of that is perceived by the market there, maybe just something different. Um, one of those roles that still is up for grabs, which will be interesting, as we've kind of mentioned on here before as well, is Dentsu's uh, national CEO role. Some have suggested that they may look within the network um, more globally for that. Um, on Dentsu there, it might be a good segue to move on to our next topic quite quickly there um i was just thinking Monday, what why 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 don't they make a move for publicists uh chief metaverse officer leon the lion um on monday we reported that Densu's australian holdings posted a loss of 23.6 million dollars for the calendar year ending in 2021 uh on december 31st according to an annual audit following losses of around 30 million the year before in calendar year 2020. Um, there has potentially been some confusion in the market over the direction of Dentsu in recent years. However, that seems to be coming to light now uh, with its repositioning of its creative business two months ago, a number, se- number of senior hires, uh, and um, I guess Dentsu calling these uh, losses to, to, to Mumbrella on Monday as one-off costs recurring across both financial year 20 and 21. Um, Darren, what did you sort of make of, of of this coming out and then I guess positioned against the global uh, annual report, which sort of was pretty good reading for Dentsu locally. Yeah, look, it's interesting um, because there was a lot of criticism in the industry uh, about Angela Tangus and, and her role, but I think Angela spent two years 
doing a lot of the rebuilding that needed to be done within Dentsu. And, Dentsu and, and this is the cost of that is coming through in those figures. You know, there was uh, BWM was finally, you know, finished and integrated. Uh, there would have been costs associated with that. And, and so I think that's what we're seeing here. But you've got to say it's a drop in the ocean. It seems like a large amount of money, but it's a drop in the ocean when you realise that Dentsu reported about a $6 billion revenue for the year globally. So it's quite small. And I think, you know, they're already saying this first uh, half year of 2022 has put them in a very good position to bounce back. And I think we're going to see some quite strong performance out of Dentsu in the, in the next 12 months. Economic headwinds, in quotes, as they say, uh, uh, taken into consideration as well. The process involved of, of Angela's work, and I think it is all about context. Um, and when you do get these reports and they come out, it really is just there in black and white. But if you don't understand where you are in the frame of things, what led up to that, what is going to, you know, come out of those sort of changes, if you don't really kind of understand it and explain it and and, and ask those questions, um, you can kind of, you know, roll with the drama, go go on that roller coaster ride of going, oh, it's going up or it's going down. But you know, you look for trends, and I think with with this one, it is a case of, um, you know, the, a correction. And and I think it's interesting that um, you know, as long as we keep looking at things in that way, that gives us a good indication for 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 the industry in general with a lot of these holding companies. Yeah, and it, you know, kind of on that point, that Dentsu did kind of mention to us and explain. Um, these figures as uh, kind of coming down to transformation and simplifying the operation. Um, and, you know, the the revenue across the year was up in 2021 versus 2020. Um, and you kind of saw that also reflected through quite high severance payments in 2020 um, and then uh, high, much higher bonus payments in 2021 compared to almost nothing in 2020, which, as you say, suggests that there was a plan there and that they were meeting a target. Um, interested to get your thoughts, Darren, while you have while we have you here on the sort of performance of some of these um, other competitor global hold co's at the moment. We, reading um, our, again our former uh, our former head of content, Damien Francis's choose choose data column yesterday. He um, sort of compared the performance of some of those global holding companies yesterday with um, Omnicom coming out with the largest market cap globally, although WPP was the highest performer in terms of revenue. How do you think they're performing here in Australia, Darren? Well, like, I think the Australian market, like the West, rest of the world, is actually doing quite well on the pent-up expenditure from the pandemic. You know, a lot of clients cut or reduced their uh, media investment during the uh, the lockdown in some categories, but generally it was down. Um, the SMI figures have shown record spend this year, and I think, uh, and and that started middle of last year. And I think the agencies have benefited from it. When you look that almost every single holding company globally uh, showed a profit increase, except for Omnicom. 
Mm-hmm. It's interesting that at the same time they're complaining about how they can't afford to uh, pay the increased salaries that are being demanded by their staff. I think uh, perhaps they're putting shareholders against uh, ahead of their employees and crying poor when in actual fact they're showing uh, record profits. So, you know, you'd have to question uh, their inability to pay for the staff um, because they're certainly showing record profit. Yeah, and then uh, as it's kind of been, again, noted quite a lot over the last week, Enero, the um, Australian local holding group, uh, has had some good press after posting some pretty positive results last Friday and its share prices jumped. Uh, interesting to see the job that um, their CEO, Brent Scrimshaw, is doing there, kind of uh, growing outwards from the Australian market, uh, I guess, unlike what we're used to seeing here. Well, and especially because, you know, we've seen a number of these groups uh, go around buying up agencies, then doing an IPO and only to fail. Uh, It's good to see Enero, you know, has actually turned around from several years ago, you know, the struggles that they went through to actually showing a growth path, which I think uh, their shareholders and their employees would be very happy to see. Well, that just about wraps us up for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Check the website for content updates. And again, make sure you're subscribed to Banksy's new weekend wrap because it's only going to get better from here. Uh, Banksy, Emma, Darren, and Kalila, thank you very much for joining me. Cheers, Cal. Thank you. Pleasure, Cal. See you next week. Well, that that was awesome.